Audrey. And I'm Amanda. Welcome back to another episode of the Not So Model Minority podcast. In today's episode, we will be shedding some light into the recent events in Myanmar. Although there has been some media coverage on the recent military coup and the ongoing Rohingya crisis, we feel that there is still very little awareness about what's happening in Myanmar among us and our friends. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. I think being abroad, it's very easy for us to feel distant from these issues that are happening yeah. outside our little bubble. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, although it's happening in a neighboring country to Indonesia, um, I have to admit that I definitely don't know as much as I should about the situation in Myanmar. Yeah, for sure. Same here. And I think if you feel the same way too, that's okay because today we are very lucky to be joined by a good friend of mine, Tuza, who has very kindly agreed to give us a crash course about Myanmar's fight for democracy. Yes, welcome Tuza. Thank you, hello, thanks so much for having me here. Thank you for coming, we're so happy you could join us. Tuza is actually the one who inspired us to do this episode because she has been quite active on Instagram (laughs) to raise awareness about this issue. But for those who don't know you, Tuza, do you want to introduce yourself and your relation to Myanmar? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Thuza and I was born in Burma or Myanmar in what used to be the capital city, Yangon. My family and I came to the UK when I was around six years old. And even though I pretty much grew up in London, my parents made sure that we didn't forget about our culture mm-hmm. and where we came from. Right. So naturally, I've always been interested in what's been happening back home. Right. And especially now with the repercussions of like the 1st of February coup mm-hmm. and the spring revolution, Mm -hmm. I do feel very emotionally attached to it Mm. and invested but my worries obviously cannot compare with those who are actually living back home Mm, right yeah Yeah. definitely Um, and we understand that it can definitely be intimidating to you know listen and learn about these really heavy topics especially when you don't know much about it so our aim here today is to make this topic as accessible as possible mm-hmm. and we will try our very best to discuss it from a perspective that includes anyone who has little to no prior knowledge of the topic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So in light of that, could you give us a brief summary of what's happening in Myanmar, Tuza? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Where do so, we start? yeah. So, before we talk about the 1st of February coup, I think it's important to know who the key players are. So, I'm clearly on the side of democracy here. So, I'll just go ahead and put some labels on. So, the good guys are the <laughs> National League for Democracy, NLD, who are a popular pro democracy political group led by the Nobel Peace Prize winner. Do Aung San Suu Kyi. We'll, mm. we'll call her Dosu because it's a long name. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who spent a total of like 15 years under house arrest. And then the bad guys are the military or the hunter or the tatmador who are responsible for the indiscriminate killings, the abductions, the oppression of ethnic minorities. And they have a history of exploiting the country's natural resources and acting for their own benefit. Mm. And um, I think what we need to understand is that the people of Myanmar had lived through about 50 years of military rule, mm-hmm. and including myself, actually, as well, because it was only a couple of years after we'd moved to the UK that the uh, country began transitioning to some form of democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. 
So I never actually experienced what it's like to live in a democratic Myanmar. I knew that under military rule, based on my own experiences and what my parents and grandparents had told me, that Myanmar was a very secretive country. News from the inside didn't travel to the outside and vice versa. And yeah, it was very much closed off from the rest of the world. Fast forward to like 2010, the country had its first general election in 20 years and this was the beginning of a transitional period to a partially democratic country. This was when Dosu got a seat in parliament and similarly in November 2020 they won again by another landslide. Mm -hmm. So the last 10 years or so it seemed like the country was progressing. Of course not perfect but like foreign investment was coming in, tourists were coming in, people of Myanmar could finally see the outside world and how other how people in other countries were living and they had hoped that we could transition to a truly democratic country someday. That was until the 1st of February this year, the night before the newly elected government was Mm -hmm. supposed to officially come into office, the military conducted a coup d'etat and threw the country back back, back under military rule. And so everyone was shocked though. Obviously people went to the streets to protest, almost everyone did. They did so peacefully for a few days and then the military started their brutal crackdown. So they started with water guns and rubber bullets, but now they're using live ammunition and weapons of war. They've been shooting into people's homes, going on raids at night. They've been killing indiscriminately. Children as young as six have died as a result. It's, It's tragic and official figures show that by 30th of April, total of 759 people have died and over 3,000 people have been detained. Mm. And I have to say that these are not just political leaders and activists. Um, these, these are also doctors. So doctors are the ones who actually started this like civil disobedience movement oh, really? back, in, yeah, back in February. And um, now they're being detained just because they're treating injured protesters. Wow. So... And um, yeah. yeah, other people that are being detained includes students, you know, really young students and um, celebrities and even just random people on the road who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, and what's really frightening is that like some people don't make it out alive. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go into detail here because it might be distressing for some people. But right. like, yeah, believe me when I say they are quite brutal, the right. military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So... What prompted this military coup and why now? Why all of a sudden? That's a very good question. We don't know. (laughs) Um, Obviously, there's probably a lot more happening behind the scenes that we aren't aware of as the general public. Mm -hmm. But the reason put forward by the military to justify the coup is that the 2020 elections was a fraud. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Right. Some some say it's partially true. That's partially true because there was widespread I can't say this word, okay. Disenfranchisement <laughs> is that how you say of minority voters. What do you mean by that? Basically the minority voters were stripped of their voting rights. And the reason they put forward for that was simply that holding elections in those areas was not safe because oh, they were okay. areas of conflict. Were they actually areas of conflict? Yeah, some of them were, but it doesn't mean they should be stripped of their voting rights. You know, everyone should get the right to vote. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they use this as an excuse. As an excuse, yeah. 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 And let's be honest, like, the military 
don't really care about that. They didn't really care about that. Mm-hmm. So there are two main theories. The first theory is that Dosu, in her previous five years of rule, she had tried to change the constitution. Right. And the military saw this as a threat to their power, and mm-hmm. that's why they staged the coup. And the other theory is that the general, Min Aung the guy who's uh, in charge of the military, right. is due to retire this year. And the coup was done in his favour as a way of salvaging his powerful position. Well, what's interesting to me, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that despite having a democratic ruling party, uh, the military in Myanmar still holds a lot of power such that there's almost a government within a government? Yeah, exactly. Like, So the 2008 constitution was drafted by the military to allow them to remain in power. So for example, it states that a minimum of 25% of the seats must be reserved for the military. Right. And this gave them control over defence, home affairs and border affairs, which are three very key ministries. Mm. And they also had the power to veto any um, major constitutional amendments, which was why, despite knowing the 2008 constitution needed to be changed, very little could be done in reality to change it. So, in my opinion, on the surface, Myanmar appeared to be democratic, but in reality, it wasn't. And what's interesting is that the 1st of Feb coup, um, according to this constitution, was legal. Oh, I see. How yeah, come? because the military had the power to declare a state of emergency and take over. I see. Yeah, the NLD definitely knew this was a possibility when they signed the agreement in the first place. Right. And was probably hoping it never got to that stage, you know? Yeah. So I'm wondering how do people in Myanmar view the military? Are the majority against them or do they actually have a lot of supporters there? So the military, they claim that they are the defender of Buddhism and they give the most privileges to the Burma slash Burmese people, mm-hmm. especially those that are Buddhist. That's important because 89% of the population are Buddhist. Oh, right. that's a huge proportion. It's a huge proportion, yeah. Um, well, does this view vary between age groups? Like, is it different from young people who I think a lot of the activists are? Yeah, so Myanmar is a really young country and um, the average age is like 27. And that's really young. Yeah, that's <laughs> super young. Yeah, that's really young. So like the people you see on the streets demonstrating, protesting, yeah. or activists, they're all really young people, mm-hmm. full of energy. You know, people <laughs> yeah. like us, well, I don't know about the energy part. <laughs> but yes, and uh, the young people, they recognise the importance of having a unified country with all the ethnic groups and all the religious groups right. having equal rights, mm, you yeah. know. Yeah, and they've actually apologised for not doing enough when the Rohingya crisis unfolded. I see. Because yeah. now everyone in the country, we're all now being oppressed in the same way. Right. And for the benefit of those who don't know, could you maybe explain what the Rohingya crisis is? And maybe we can even start from who are these Rohingya people? Mm, yes. There's a history of internal conflict within Myanmar between the Burmese majority and ethnic minorities. Um, Mm. There were many civil wars after gaining independence in the mid-1940s that are still ongoing today. And the military have been fighting against all of the ethnic people. And the ethnic people themselves, they formed their own armed forces. The Rohingya 
they've been living in Myanmar for centuries, mm. but they're not recognized as one of the 135 ethnic groups. Okay. So the government denied their citizenship. They claim that they're illegal immigrants who mm. came over from Bangladesh and essentially stateless people. Mm. So what happened was a group of Rohingya insurgents, they formed this Salvation Army and mm-hmm. then they were fighting for their own citizenship and basic rights. Right. Yeah. And so they ended up attacking multiple security posts and killed a few officers. And then the military responded with a brutal crackdown and so-called like clearance operations and burned down loads mm. of villages and mm. that caused tens of thousands of people to cross the border into Bangladesh and they eventually formed the world's largest refugee camp. Mm, Yeah, Yeah. I think we've heard a lot about this as well because as a fellow Muslim country, Indonesia had a lot of Rohingya people coming in as well. So it was was a huge issue Mm. that we hear a lot about back home. But I think one thing that I found really shocking was that there's this huge controversy around um, Daosu's role, or lack thereof, I guess, in terms of preventing this genocide. Do you know much about this? So when the Rohingya crisis was put under the spotlight by the international community, mm-hmm. Daosu, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, she was expected to make a statement. And what was really shocking, right, to the international community was that she refused to call it a genocide Mm. when you could see that it was a genocide you know right she said we cannot consider genocide as the only possible explanation and this was hugely controversial she inevitably lost some supporters and was heavily criticized by the international community but back home it was a different story the majority still saw her as their leader Mm. and um, supported what she said and a lot of Burmese people did not want to call it a genocide either. It's a very difficult and controversial thing to explain, but the massacre was driven mainly by a fake narrative formulated by the military. Oh, so people actually believe in that narrative. Yeah, so the thing is, like, if, if we dig deeper, you can see that this happened primarily as a result of some underlying anti Muslim sentiment within the country. And that's not to say that no one in Myanmar cared about the Rohingya people, you know. But, like, the point is that the majority of Dosu's supporters still supported her because she was seen in a, as an icon of democracy. Right. And pretty much the only person who's gotten close enough to... Close enough in fighting against the military. So mm, yeah. they had overlooked that. Yeah. This is super interesting because I was just watching a video by this Burmese activist. I don't really know how to pronounce her name, but I think it's Tinzar oh. Shinli. Yeah, Shinli, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then um, she was talking about the dangers of personalizing politics and how a fragile democracy can be when we attribute it to a single person or a democratic mm. hero. Yeah. I think it's really important for us to recognize that democracy is something that only can be achieved with like collective effort. Mm, it's not just yeah, one person sure. thing. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to the question of how we as an international community can help. Yes. So I have been following a personal Instagram account of a young woman back home who's mm. been documenting every day since the coup started. Wow. Oh, wow. And um, she's super fast with updates and she never misses an opportunity to raise her voice. And as she's someone who has experienced everything firsthand and has a better idea of 
the perspectives of like the protesters and those in the front line more than me right. honestly i recently asked her how we could help as the international community oh wow. Wow, that's amazing yeah. yeah and she said that those of us living in democratic countries we have a lot of power to help writing to our local MPs, for example. Mm. And paraphrasing her words, she said, we vote for our political leaders and therefore we have the power to tell them what we want as their constituents. Right. You know? And she told me that the people of Myanmar don't need saving. We mm. will save we will save ourselves, right. but we do need support. Uh-huh. Right. So countries in the West, like the UK and the US, have spoken up condemning the military mm-hmm. and the UN have imposed some sanctions. But I think it's also very important for us to see a stronger response from Myanmar's uh, neighbouring countries in Southeast Asia, especially in ASEAN. Right. right? Yeah. yeah, I think this is super important because I think two summers ago, I briefly worked with the ASEAN Human Rights Representative in Indonesia. And she was saying how because of the non-interventionary role that ASEAN has, it's extremely right. difficult for them to drive change. Mm. And... So basically, she's mm. saying when there's a genocide, they can't actually force the Myanmar government to stop. Yeah, they I can see. only advise them and provide pressure. Right. Mm. So one of the projects that we were working on was actually to encourage these discussions among university students because we recognize how important the voices of the young can be in influencing mm. government action. Mm, yeah, I recently attended a talk about the genocide in Uyghur in China. Uh, They were saying how important these government initiatives condemning genocide or just stating that what's happening is genocide actually really make a big difference. Mm, And and I think one thing that we noticed while researching about this topic was that there are a lot of parallels between the fight for democracy in Myanmar and Hong Kong, right? Mm. Um, There's much, much less international media coverage for Myanmar. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if this is because Myanmar plays quote-unquote less significant role on the global stage in terms of politics and economics compared to, say, Hong Kong or China. So there's Mm. less of a national interest for corporate or state media to cover them. I think you're right. I think that's probably the case. And um, you do see a lot of similarities um, in what people in Myanmar and what people in Hong Kong and the, and Thailand are fighting for. Like, yeah. You know, we all just want basic human rights and mm. we all want democracy, and true democracy. <laughs> and um, I think I'm in a very safe and privileged position right now, mm, living right. in the UK, being able to talk freely about democracy and openly criticise exactly. yeah. the country without risking my life. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so... We may be physically far away from the crises that are happening mm. in those countries, but doesn't mean that we can't do anything to help. Right. You know? Yeah, that's true. So even just like sharing a post on Instagram, it's mm. like helping. It's helping by raising awareness, especially exactly. with people from Myanmar, just because there's no benefit of other countries, for other countries mm. to yeah. help out. People from Myanmar, they're experiencing internet blackouts on a regular basis now. Yeah, that's crazy. And so one of their biggest fears is being forgotten as a country. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's true because without media coverage, it's so easy for us to just yeah. forget these things mm-hmm. are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because at least for Hong Kong, it was like appearing in the news every other day. Mm. Whereas it happened like same... Well, within the same year, kind yeah. of, like, the Myanmar crisis, but but no one was talking about it. Yeah. You don't really see it on Facebook. There's no you don't economic really see interest. Exactly. No economic yeah. interest. Yeah. 
But yeah. also, I think even with media coverage, yeah. a lot of the time, Western media sort of sensationalizes when there's like a huge riot or a huge coup, mm. but then it sort of dies down. Yeah. But I think it's really important to keep the conversation going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Mm. Yeah. Just continuing to listen and share what's happening just gives those that are fighting hope, you know. Right. And um, mm-hmm. it helps a lot to know that people care, that there are people dying and there yeah. are people yeah. getting. It can be a difficult fight and it's good to know that the world is watching and supporting mm. you. It feels very di- distant, right? Like student activism, like what what does like me complaining in the UK <laughs> do to help? But like exactly. we, we could really pressure our government and our government will in turn pressure the Myanmar government and hope, hopefully that, that will lead to some form of impact if not just support Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i hope so as well well thank you so much suza for joining us today and explaining to us what must be a very difficult topic for you to discuss no thank you for having me here and um yeah it was really lovely speaking to you everyone <laughs> yeah. both of you and um um if you do want to help um uh, like you can like sign letters and petitions and like donate and stuff but i can i can give like a list of uh social media platforms oh like, where to do- yeah that would be amazing that'd be great actually yeah, yeah that's that would be so good thank good. you so much we definitely learned a lot and it's very you know, it's very sobering reminder of how sheltered we are and how privileged we are to be quite remote from these humanitarian issues mm. that are still a huge part of the world we face today, you know? Yeah, and I think we also recognize that some of our listeners may still have questions about what's actually happening in Myanmar mm-hmm. beyond what we've discussed today because, well, I certainly do. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Tuza has very kindly agreed, as she mentioned, to share these resources over Instagram. Mm. Yeah. And so I think we will take one Saturday, maybe this Saturday, yeah. um, to answer some of these questions. Mm-hmm. So we'll post the resources that Tuza mentioned on our Instagram and yeah if you guys have any questions yeah do watch out for that space (laughs) i'd I'd love to answer any questions you guys have (laughs) thank you so much Susa. so to send them to our insta story this saturday at not so underscore model minority thank you bye Bye. Bye.